Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me this week, Jason Moser and Ron Gross. Good to see you as always, gentlemen. Hey, hey. How you doing, Chris? We've got the latest headlines from Wall Street. We've got the latest on the cannabis industry, along with a couple of stocks on our radar. But we're going to begin with the story that we have all been waiting for. On Monday, Pfizer announced that its COVID-19 vaccine, which is in Phase 3 trials, is more than 90% effective in participants who were not previously infected. Obviously, Jason, we still need final approval. There are still steps to go. But in terms of the ripple effect for the stock market, it was pretty <laughs> breathtaking to see entire categories of stocks go up 10% or more. And on the flip side, a lot of the quote unquote stay at home stocks falling 10, 15% or more. Yeah, I mean, it, it, this this is the news that we want to hear, right? I mean, this is the news we've been waiting for, and it does sound like we're one step closer to um, it, you know it, the light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. But it, to your point there, I think it, it's been it's been very entertaining to watch the knee jerk reactions in the market over over the week, and. It, I mean, I don't think it was really a surprise to any of us to see this "quote unquote" stay-at-home stock reaction, right? I mean, we were all anticipating that there would be some sort of of rotation from one to to the other. It was a little bit surprising to see how drastic some of those moves were, but I mean, you know, that's the power of um, big money and a lot of liquidity being able to make decisions very quickly and just and just go ahead and, and move. Um, it is worth remembering. I mean, as you said, this is something. This is this is not over, right? We still have plenty of of work to do in regard to production, distribution. I mean, there is going to be the time time that goes through here. Um, but you know, I mean, I, it makes me think back to the Fool Fest presentation that I gave in I think it was June of this year when we, I was talking about stay at home stocks and presenting some ideas for members. In, in my 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 final takeaway was ultimately like, look, the stay at home stock conversation is fun, right? It, it's interesting to look at businesses from that perspective. But but let's make sure to understand this is a short term catalyst, right? It's not a long term trend. I mean, we're not going to be staying at home forever. And so make sure that these stay at home stocks that you're that you're interested in that you're buying, make sure they're going to be good businesses even after all of this is said and done. Because you know, you look at companies like DocuSign, like Teladoc Health, like Chipotle even. Um, I mean, these are companies that I think will continue to prosper well after all of this is done because of this acceleration in this digital transformation. So it's worth just keeping that in mind and understanding that a lot of these short-term knee-jerk reactions are just that short-term knee-jerk. We still like a lot of these businesses that we've been focused on over this past year. Yeah, I'll take a little bit of the other side of what Jason was saying about how the the stay-at-home phenomena was perhaps a short-term catalyst. I think I don't blame any of the traders out there for not necessarily knowing how to play this or play it correctly because we didn't know necessarily if this was a permanent paradigm shift in the way the country is going to operate or a bubble was forming, or a combination of, of both. Um, and I do think, in a sense, even though this will shake out and the vaccine will get people back to doing things they used to do, I do think there is going to be a certain amount of a paradigm shift in this country. For sure, not everyone is going back to work. Um, and I think for uh, 
the way companies run, the way um, companies that benefit from work at home uh, operate, that will benefit them. The commercial real estate market is perhaps forever changed, at least for the foreseeable future. I do think there are some real paradigm shifts. And so, the, the seeing the reaction in the markets are always interesting to me, because you would think that the, the institutional investors certainly knew a vaccine was coming at some point. So, to bid these stocks up to the point where they then needed to really correct is, is interesting. Like, why would you do that? And I think you, it's because of human nature, and, and we don't really know. We don't know where the paradigm ends and the bubble begins. It's greed, right? It's just it's just uninhibited greed. But I mean, I, I think Ron, I think you and I probably agree for the most part on this. I, I do agree. I think we we are we're going to see some permanent changes in the way things are done. I was thinking about this last night as I was picking up dinner from Chick Fil A. Mm. I love the fact that I can just order off of that app, go park in a parking place, and then have them bring that food out to my car. Right, it's one more solution where I don't necessarily have to go to the drive-through. I don't have to go into the store, and so you know the restaurant industry. I think is a good example of one where we'll see. I think a permanent shift in the way behavior is, and we saw a great example this week in Chipotle announcing that digital-only store. If you that's saw right. that, I mean, I think that's so smart to do because I think this has changed the way consumers ultimately will want to do business, at least to some extent. We just didn't really know it. Until it was kind of forced upon us. <laughs> yeah, I wonder: Did this situation accelerate those changes, or would those changes maybe have never, never come to the extent we're seeing now? That's an interesting. Uh, we'll look yeah. back at it ten years and try to, to do a, a post mortem on it. Disney ended the fiscal year with another loss, but the fourth quarter report came with some positive news as well. Disney Plus now has 73 million paid subscribers just one year after it launched, and shares of Disney up eight percent this week. Run. Yeah, crushed expectations. Disney Plus clearly the bright spot. Vaccine bodes well for the parks, but you know, for now, still pockets of weakness. First annual loss in 40 years. That that's pretty. You know, that speaking of a once in a lifetime circumstance that affects businesses, that that that's a that's a big a data point. So total revenue down 23%. Looking at at the various segments, um, direct to consumer, not surprisingly, up 41%. But interesting to note a higher operating loss. Improvements at Hulu, ESPN Plus, offset by higher costs at Disney Plus, because guess what? The rollout is going quite well, as you mentioned. 73.7 million subscribers, you know, really strong. And and let's not sell Hulu or ESPN short um, on, on kind of the streaming side. Hulu 36 million, ESPN 10 million um, subscribers, so pretty cool. One year free trial offer for Verizon customers for Disney Plus is expiring this week. Let's keep an eye on what that does to subscriptions because that could be interesting. Let's mention a couple of other things about some of the other segments. Media networks up 11%, weakness in ESPN offset by increases in FX and the domestic Disney channels. No one should be surprised that the parks were down 61%, but again, the vaccine bodes bodes well, I think, um, for next year and the year after. Studio entertainment revenue down 52%, no big theatrical releases versus last year we had uh, Lion King, Toy Story 4. Um, so, shouldn't be a surprise there as well. Disney announced they would not pay its semi annual dividend. I think that's prudent. Let's keep kind of hunkered down here for a while until we see the, the actual turn. But I do think things are looking up for Disney. I've held this stock for years, really decades, um, and I continue to be a, a proud shareholder. Unity Software went public in September and issued its first quarterly report after the closing bell on Thursday. 
the video game software business didn't just lose money, Jason. They lost nearly six times as much money as Wall Street analysts were expecting. So, of course, shares of Unity Software up more than 10% on Friday. Well, it's an IPO, Chris. So, there's lots to go through there in regard to how those financials all play out. Um, but I think the big picture takeaway here this really was just the kind of quarter you wanted to see them report is their first one post IPO. There's nothing crazy here either way, really no real surprises. This really is just the business we signed up for. And for those unfamiliar business with the business, Unity operates a software platform that helps customers develop, create, run, monetize, interactive, real-time 2D and 3D content. And it helps their clients bring more visualization and real-time experiences to more industries. It's known for its gaming prowess, but really it's entering markets, including Automotive, architecture, engineering, and construction, many more via all sorts of interesting partnerships from companies like Autodesk to NVIDIA and plenty more. But but to the quarter itself, revenue of just over 200 million, that was up 53.3% from the third quarter of 2019. They they operate in two Segments of the business. There's the operate solutions and the create solutions. The operate solutions segment of the business grew 70, uh, 72%. That represents about 60% of the overall business versus the create solutions segment. We saw gross margin tick down just a little bit. But an interesting data point here that I thought tells tells a good story here: customers that contribute more than one hundred thousand dollars in annual revenue to the business that grew to seven hundred and thirty nine customers from five hundred and fifty three a year ago. But interestingly, the percentage of those customers' total revenue that stayed flat at seventy two percent. In other words. It's a sign that they're not growing overly dependent on those big customers, right? And that's a good thing. They're growing that overall customer base and not relying too much on the big customers. Um, dollar based net expansion rate of, of 144% versus 132% shows that they're expanding the relationship that they have. Guidance in check for the rest of the year. I mean, all things considered, a very good start. But yeah, we'll need to pay attention to the financials as they work all of the IPO uh, nuts and bolts through. Shares of DraftKings up on Friday after a third quarter report that came with increased guidance for the fourth quarter. And the return of the NFL in September seems to have helped the sports betting business, Ron. Yeah, a pretty strong quarter, and probably growth continues here for quite some time. Revenue up 42% after adjusting for the timing of that kind of wonky public offering that they did, where they kind of backed into a special purpose acquisition company called Diamond Eagle. Um, an increase of monthly unique players of 64%, now topping 1 million. Um, as you said, major league sports like NBA, MLB, NHL returned, very, very important. Now, sales and marketing up significantly, about $200 million. Um, that's necessary. Um, they're live now in seven more states. That comes with increased expenses, but that is going to be, be the way they grow this business. They're making lots of move, moves here. They're entering new states, both you know on the gambling side, the fantasy side, the advertising side. Uh, they're signing new strategic agreements. Um, PGA, MLB, even the Cubs and the New York Giants are like kind of now the official teams of of DraftKings. Uh, they're investing in technology, including a standalone casino app. So lot, lots of I even like what they're doing on the corporate governance side, uh, adding two directors. Michael Jordan is now a special advisor to the board. Um, so, lots of good stuff going on. They raised their 2020 revenue guidance, introduced 2021 revenue guidance, which is pretty strong. It's going to be an interesting company to watch. 
Coming up, a lesson in how one company's announcement can affect another company's stock price. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here with Jason Moser and Ron Gross. Shares of Lyft up more than 20% this week. Lyft's third quarter revenue was higher than expected, and they announced they're working on a food delivery service. Ron, I don't mean to be skeptical, but that is a healthy bump in the stock price for a business that is still quite unprofitable. Right, and show me the path to profitability, please, someone. But this is this was a good quarter, all things considered. But I think there are many things to consider. But all things considered, not too shabby. Now, revenue down forty eight percent. That's year over year. Not surprising. What's important to watch is how they're doing sequentially, how things are improving. So a forty seven percent increase in revenue from the second quarter to the third quarter, clearly showing improvement as things. Get back to normal. Of course, now we're seeing spikes and things getting back to unnormal. I can't predict necessarily what's going to happen there, but I think we're going to be hunkered down clearly for the winter. So, you know, let's keep an eye on again. Sequential probably will be weak going into next quarter. But there was a recovery in active riders, a 44% recovery from the second quarter. I'm not getting in an Uber or a Lyft anytime soon, but clearly folks felt comfortable doing so. For context, active riders were 12.5 million in the third quarter versus. 22.3 million this time last year. So still, you know, a big bite taken out of their business. Net loss was around $450 million for the quarter. They remain focused. I love this. This is the whole path to profitability the thing we like to make fun of, or at least I do. They remain focused on achieving adjusted EBITDA profitability by the fourth quarter of next year. Who wants to bet that that gets pushed into 2022? I do. Um, Proposition 22 out of California, really important, as we discussed um, with Uber, just as important for Lyft and other um, companies that focus on the gig worker, the independent contractor. Um, if that had gone south for them, it would have been a major deal. Um, so it was extremely important that that appears to have been passed. Balance sheet's okay, $2.5 billion of unrestricted cash. Um, and as you said, John Zimmer, the, the founder, said they're getting into the delivery business, uh, doing it differently than Uber. They're going to partner with uh, the companies that want these deliveries to the so-called last mile. Be fun to watch uh, how that shakes out. Cisco Systems' first quarter report had the distinction of being the fourth in a row where the company's revenue declined, and yet shares of Cisco Systems up more than 10% this week. Jason, what's going on here? Well, uh, thank you, low expectations, right, Chris. <laughs> um, I mean, listen, I don't, I don't mean to sound like too, too glass half uh, empty here, but I mean, I can't think of one reason to invest in this business given the other options that are out there today. I mean, it, it's just, it kind of feels like the IBM of a new generation. And, and if you look at the numbers, I mean, that really does tell you the story. Sales down nine percent from a year ago. Earnings per share as well. Guidance is not inspired. Um, I mean, they've just they've been outplayed and out innovated by all of these smarter and nimbler companies out there, and, and I don't think there's a reason to expect that to change. Uh, I mean, you could have seen maybe some signs in 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 the Cisco WebEx, the video conferencing segment of the business, but but that hasn't even really um, performed, given you know that we're living in this Microsoft Teams and Zoom world now. Um, so I mean, you look at this company's financials over the last several years; top lines going nowhere, net income going nowhere. EPS is really only being driven by share repurchases. Uh, they do have a relatively healthy balance sheet. It feels to me like the biggest catalyst for this company is going to be uh, some sort of meaningful acquisition, but we're going to have to wait and see there. 
Third quarter profits for McDonald's were higher than expected. Same-store sales in the U.S. rose more than 4%, but shares of McDonald's flat this week, Ron. Yeah, you know, they beat expectations despite revenue being down 2%, but there's some some good and some bad here. Uh, so, a mixed report. Global comp sales down about 2%, but in the US, up 4.6%. So, US clearly doing better. International uh, down 4.4%. So, US much stronger than their international business. Drive through and delivery continue to be an integral part of their recovery, an essential part of the recovery. Uh, their famous orders marketing campaign. Chris, did you get your Travis Scott meal during the quarter? I did not. Yeah, neither did I. But it was uh, it was quite effective, um, and and they're doing a pretty interesting job with their marketing lately, which they've they've indicated will continue. Uh, earnings up five percent, not too bad in this market. Declared a three percent increase in their dividend. We've discussed before some folks cutting their dividend, some folks business strong enough to actually increase their dividend, which is an indication of good things to come, I think. 2.4% yield from, from McDonald's, not, not too shabby. And they announced new growth strategies like their marketing campaigns, focusing on digital uh, digital delivery and drive-through, what they call the three Ds, going to introduce a loyalty program, a McPlant line-based, a plant uh, menu-based items, and most importantly, a new crispy chicken sandwich. So I'll I'll, I'll sell the plant-based items and I'll buy the chicken sandwich. <laughs> uh, speaking of the McPlant, shares of Beyond Meat down 20% this week, uh, in part because of that news, Jason. But also, Beyond Meat's third-quarter report was really ugly. It wasn't the best. I, I do agree. But a bit of a tale of two businesses. You saw the retail uh, channel net revenues are up 39%. That uh, you unfortunately then had it countered with food service net revenues down 41% uh, year over year. Now, retail is far and away the larger part of the business. That represents about 80% of revenue for, through the first nine months of the year. Uh, but, but interestingly, international food service really took a hit down 65%. Total international revenue down 46%. And all of this just ultimately results in a top-line growth of just under 3%. That's a problem for a stock that's valued the way this one uh, is or was. Uh, not really a knock on the business, but you have to look at the facts here. It's it's not a profitable business. There's no free cash flow, and it's not necessarily even in the good times. It's not necessarily a high margin business either. So you have to consider that in in, in the power of substitutes in this market. Um, I, I do think it's interesting this this whole McDonald's McPlant thing. Uh, it, it, you know, you saw McDonald's on their call playing offense. You know, beyond meat, they really sound like they're playing defense. So that'll be something to keep a keep an eye on going forward. All right, guys, we'll see you later in the show. Coming up, you may have missed it, but November's been a big month for the cannabis industry. Details next, so stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. The big winner on Election Day this year wasn't a Democrat or Republican. It was the cannabis industry. Five states had some type of marijuana legalization on the ballot, and voters in all five states approved those measures. Emily Flippin is a senior analyst at The Motley Fool and oversees our cannabis investing service, Marijuana Masters, which made her the perfect person for me to catch up with earlier this week to talk about Election Day, where she sees this industry going, and more. I'll get to the federal legislation in a second. Let's start with the states, because we had five more states now, Arizona, Mississippi, Montana, New Jersey, South Dakota. They all approved some form of legalization. 
we got more states coming in the next couple of years, including states like Florida, Ohio, New York. They're going to have additional legalization measures on the ballot. Uh, but for right now, given what we just saw on election day with five more states, how much of a boost is this for the cannabis industry? It's extremely important for the cannabis industry to gain legitimacy. And the more states that have uh, cannabis legalized, preferably recreationally for the industry, but even medicinally, provides a level of legitimacy to their businesses right now, especially because cannabis and marijuana is still illegal under federal law. So, more states that have legalized provides a little bit of a tailwind to businesses that may already be up and running in states where cannabis businesses have been operating for adult use, recreational use already legally. So, it's an incremental tailwind. I like to say that we'll see states start to fall in kind of like a domino fashion to begin to tax the substance to gain revenue from it. But the big move will have to turn to the federal government. Well, and when you look at some of the numbers, and I know California is the biggest state, so it's not like a state with the population of Montana or South Dakota can extrapolate similar numbers. But when you look at the tax dollars that California is bringing in, it makes a pretty compelling case. It makes a compelling case for the states to legalize when you look at it from the perspectives of, of businesses, right? So the cannabis businesses, the people who are owning, operating retail dispensaries, growing the product, you know, extracting it, selling it themselves. It's not as simple as what state has the biggest population. I want to be there because we're legalizing on a state level. Every individual state has their own regulations about where you can sell, what you can sell, how you can sell. All of these things make it really interesting when you look at the the economics of cannabis businesses. It's not the same across the United States. It's highly dependent upon individual regulations. I'll point to Florida as a, a market that's really interesting. You mentioned that's a that's a state that could potentially legalize for adult use at some point in the future. Uh, right now, they have medical and they have to vertically integrate in Florida. So, that means that if you're a cannabis operator, you have to grow your cannabis yourself, you have to change the product and then sell it yourself. You have to do everything yourself. And it actually, because of the way they have licenses shake out, makes for a really, really lucrative state, more lucrative than the California market, which is seeing more pricing pressures because they've opened up four more licenses. Under the Trump administration, there was no appetite whatsoever for any kind of uh, federal legalization. Um, under a Biden administration, there might be, although at this moment, uh, control of the United States Senate is, is kind of up in the air. Um, uh, Mitch McConnell, the current majority leader um, in the past, really hasn't shown any interest in moving this type of legislation. Is it, is it fair to assume for investors that uh, with Mitch McConnell, if he remains the majority leader in the Senate, federal legalization legislation really isn't moving anywhere? I think that's a fair statement. I, I try to temper investors' expectations for what a Biden administration may do as when it comes to cannabis. The most that Biden administration has talked about is potentially decriminalization, which is great for you know a social level, not as important 
from an economic level, right? So the businesses themselves would still be dealing with a substance that's illegal under federal law. And that puts your focus towards, okay, well, if it's not a priority of the executive branch, then this needs to be a priority of Congress. And we've seen a lot of legislation come up over the past few years. I'll point to the Safe Banking Act, which was passed by the House of Representatives to open up the banking sector for legal cannabis industries at the state level. And that simply hasn't been docketed to the Senate. It hasn't been made a priority. It's it's dying on Mitch McConnell's desk, as it were. So I don't expect for that to change in the future, not just because we haven't seen a lot of excitement over the past few years for the Senate to take up changing legislations, but also because we clearly have more pressing priorities in this country, in my opinion, as opposed to you know getting the Safe Banking Act Act passed. We have you know healthcare reform. We have the potential for for dealing with the, this pandemic that we're all suffering through right now. So I, I just don't think that this is top of mind for a Senate. So I would tell investors to temper their their short to medium term expectations for what could happen on a federal level. Let's move to the company side of things because we've talked before about look a lot of interest in this industry over the last few years. Therefore, a lot of startups and the potential for consolidation. Do you expect big companies, whether they are in this industry or outside of this industry, but maybe want to start getting exposure to it? Do you expect over the next couple of years large companies to make investments in cannabis businesses, uh, or did what we saw with Constellation Brands and Canopy Growth did that scare people away? I think it will take some sort of federal legalization to really see the money start to flow into these cannabis businesses. Uh, but the businesses that we see already taking the risk of investing in the space are businesses that see the writing on the wall. I think Constellation Brands may have been the exception, but I'm pointing specifically towards tobacco companies, Altria Group, making their own investments into the cannabis industry. These are businesses that need to make those investments despite the outsized risk. I think uh, Canopy Growth and, and Constellation brands may be a little bit ahead of their time, uh, and as that investment's panning out and the losses are accumulating to Constellation Brands thanks to that investment, what I would expect over the short to medium term, uh, two things. First, larger businesses, if they are getting involved in the space, I would expect for them to have partners, to have uh, cash investments, not to take large equity stakes the way that Constellation Brands has with Canopy Growth. And The second thing I'd expect is for actual cannabis companies, legal cannabis companies right now in states where they operate, making investments into other businesses. For instance, you mentioned Arizona is a state that has legalized adult-use cannabis starting in January of next year, 2021. We already saw a current multi-state operator in the U.S. make an acquisition in that state to try to expand their own business. These little deals, I think, are we're going to start to see shakeouts as more and more states come online. For investors who look at this industry and think, okay, if I'm looking 10 years out, 20 years out, I think it's bigger then than it is today. I want to start dipping my toes in the water here. Where should they start looking? Because we, you know, to take a completely different industry, housing. Um, we've talked before uh, on this show and on other shows about how maybe jumping right in with home builders isn't necessarily the best way to go. You can you can invest in housing through home improvement companies like Home Depot and Lowe's, um, the quote unquote picks and shovels companies. Is is the cannabis industry sort of the same way that for people like me who do not have any investments in this, starting out look at maybe those ancillary companies on the margin? 
Yeah, that's a great way to get started in the cannabis industry. The first thing I'll say before diving into some of those and some of those segments is, look, don't fall for the fear of missing out in cannabis. Uh, I think a lot of people feel like they need to get exposure. They have to do it right now, or they're going to miss the boat. The reality is, is that this is an industry that's probably going to take at least five to seven years to really start to pan out. And even from that point, it may take another decade to grow. You're looking at very, in my opinion, long-term tailwinds here. That means there's no rush. Don't panic and go feel the need to buy every cannabis company. But that being said, if you're interested in this space, but you're not necessarily interested in buying a pure play cannabis industry, uh, there's lots of ancillary plays. Uh, you can look at uh, retailers of hydroponics as a good example. Hydroponics has been the cheapest way to grow cannabis. And a lot of these retailers, Scott's Miracle Grow is a good example of a company that made an acquisition of a hydroponic retailer. Even Grow Generation, specifically targeting the cannabis industry. These are two companies that have expanded as a result that are otherwise solid businesses that aren't buying and selling cannabis themselves. So There's lots of ways to play the industry. If you are looking for those pure plays, then what I would consider is, is look to the US. Uh, a lot of the Canadian players get a lot of press and a lot of excitement, but in my opinion, the way regulations have shook out in Canada makes it a really hard and price competitive market. Not to say there aren't good companies or good plays, but generally speaking, I think the opportunities that we see in the U.S. Uh, are greater, in my opinion. Again, hold the companies for the long term, though, because this will take a long time to play out and for these businesses to be consistently profitable. If you want to hear more from her, check out our daily podcast, Industry Focus. She hosts it every Tuesday. Emily Flippin, always great talking to you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Up next, Ron Gross and Jason Moser return with a couple of stocks on their radar. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. I smoke two joints in the morning. I smoke two joints at night. I smoke two joints in the afternoon. It makes me feel all right. I smoke two joints. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here with Jason Moser and Ron Gross. Seven weeks until the end of 2020, guys, which means there is still time for some new IPOs. On Friday, DoorDash filed its paperwork with the SEC, the leading food delivery app in the U.S., was last valued in the private markets at $16 billion. What do we think? Are they, are, are they possibly going to find some takers for their stock? I think this looks okay to me. $1.9 billion in revenue over the nine months, net loss of $149 million, which actually isn't that bad. It seems to me they're getting close. Um, so it would be nice to see a profitable IPO. Um, as you said, $16 billion is a big valuation for a non profitable company, but I think there are some takers here. Um, they're the leader in market share, 49% um, compared to Uber's 22% market share, Grubhub's 20% market share. They've got a million. Million delivery workers, Prop 22 also helped these guys because they're all independent contractors, of which my son was one over the summer. Uh, more than 18 million customers. Uh, I hate the corporate governance here. Three shares of three classes of stock. Uh, it'll be the voting power will be controlled by the founders. Um, but what are you going to do? That's that's how these things are going nowadays. 
Our email address is radio at fool.com. Got an email from Charlie Baldwin at Lehigh University. Go Hawks! Uh, he writes, I'm 22 years old. I've been invested in the market for a couple of years now. Most of my portfolio is invested in tech stocks, and I own a lot of Amazon. With this new antitrust lawsuit against Google, I'm curious how shareholders have historically been impacted by regulatory breakups. If Amazon were to get broken up, would it be good or bad for me? P.S. I'm a huge fan of the show. It's gone a long way in providing a foundational understanding of my knowledge in the stock market. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Charlie. Thank you for listening, and thanks for the question. Jason, I'll go to you first. What do you think? Yeah, I mean it's it's difficult to say because um, regulatory breakups aren't really all that common. I mean, the threat of regulatory breakup is one thing, but that threat could result in ultimately a different action. Like Amazon or Google could come out there and say, "Hey, well, what if we went ahead and spun off this business before you tried to break us up?" That could solve the problem, and so that you know that that could work out, and that actually you know that that can work out fine. Oftentimes, I mean, this wasn't a regulatory breakup, but back in um, 2013. Pfizer uh, split out its animal uh, medicine business, Zoetis, and so now you have two companies. You have Pfizer and Zoetis, and if if you go back uh, to that point in January where they split that out, Pfizer's total return to this to this point here is around eighty two percent. Zoetis is four hundred and sixty three percent. Now I'm a very happy Zoetis shareholder, Chris, but that's because I love the animal market, right? I love pets. I think animal uh, medicine. There's just a tremendous opportunity there, and Zoetis owns that market. Um, I think. If you look at something like an Amazon, for example, and I'm an Amazon shareholder, I mean, the plain example would be splitting off the commerce business from the AWS business. Um, I can see the merits in owning both. I mean, I, I certainly think that they uh, are market leaders in, in both respects there. And, and so, again, I mean, it boils down to is it a regulatory breakup or did they come to some sort of a resolution beforehand? Either way, I mean, this together, this is a phenomenal business, whether you're talking about Alphabet or Amazon. I, I think that if you separate you know, the two most important parts of it, they would they would continue to figure out ways to be awesome. So uh, I, I wouldn't worry too much about that at this point. I think in general, if it's the Justice Department's goal to hurt a company's competitive position, that typically would bode poorly then for the company going forward. It might very well be good for the consumer, but in general, a company's competitive advantage would go down. On last week's show, we talked about how Panera is starting to test the idea of selling alcohol in a few locations in the greater Kansas City area. And we put out a call to the dozens of listeners for a little boots on the ground research. And they delivered an email from Andrew in Overland Park, Kansas, who wrote, A couple of weeks ago, I went into Panera to get a coffee after work. I found the place that was always empty, filled with people drinking. They had turned it into a fun bar-type atmosphere with wine and local Kansas City hard seltzers and brews. Apparently, not everybody is a fan, because on my way to work today, I stopped by the Panera near my house, and an older couple was complaining to the manager about being there the night before. They were offended that their favorite restaurant had become, as they put it, a swingers bar. <laughs> now, the characterization of this couple's uh, aside, uh, thanks to Andrew, uh, nobody has better listeners than we do when it comes to this. Uh, I don't know. Uh, it, it, it seems like the test is off to a good start, Ron. 
I love it that it's their favorite restaurant. That's the part of the the, the, the sentence that I that I just loved. Um, I don't know. This 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 doesn't this doesn't work for me. I don't I don't see this this altering this restaurant um, in any major way. I think it's remain what it is. Uh, the the clean flu food slogan always I found odd, but you know it's relatively fine food for lunch. It's not a nighttime establishment. It's not a bar. Uh, I don't I don't see this taking hold. I'm just going to say one more time, Bloomberg doesn't have their listeners doing boots on the ground research like we do. We have the best <laughs> listeners. Let's get to the stocks on our radar. Our man behind the glass, Dan Boyd, is going to hit you with a question. Jason Moser, you're up first. What are you looking at this week? Sure. Uh, let's let's open this with Cloudflare. Uh, ticker is NET. Cloudflare operates a cloud platform that delivers a range of different network services to businesses around the world, with a focus really on edge computing. Um, and, and these services focus on on security, performance, reliability, uh, internal protections, and more. Um, edge computing, for those unfamiliar, edge computing ultimately optimizes connected devices and applications um, by ultimately bringing computing closer to the source of the data being used. So, as we talk more about 5G, in, in faster bandwidth and in, you know more more data and more robust experiences. I mean, edge computing is going to play a big role in that. And Cloudflare's business is is really interesting. I mean, their their model leaves really no stone unturned as they serve everything from free to use to pay as you go to subscription offerings. Uh, no customer accounts for more than five percent of revenue. The top twenty customers remain under twenty percent of total revenue. All in all, they have three point two million. Total customers that's free and paying subs, uh, you know, big time customers like Mars, Garmin, uh, IBM, of course, <laughs> Shopify, uh, LabCorp, and many, many more. So I, I think in this age of edge computing, um, in, in this move to 5G and faster everything, a Cloudflare is going to be a business that's really helping get us there. Dan, question about Cloudflare? Absolutely, Chris. And J Jason, you know, this isn't for me, but this is for somebody who maybe doesn't know because I totally know. But <laughs> uh, maybe you should explain what edge computing is. Yeah, well, uh, you know, edge computing ultimately it's it's just about bringing the actual devices and applications, bringing computing closer to the source of the data being used. So it's it's actually shortening the distance that that data has to travel through through infrastructure that's strategically placed all over the world. We got a minute left, Ron. What are you looking at? I got to revisit Titan International, Chris. TWI, global manufacturer of highway wheels and tires. I've owned this for years, recommended it many times on this show. So far, it's been a rather large blunder of mine, quite frankly. Um, but it is showing signs of life. Shares are up 250% since June 1st, up 65% just in November. Yes, I'm still losing money on the investment. But some positive results. Agricultural markets look like they're going to strengthen. We could get an infrastructure spending bill that would bode well for the construction market. Balance sheet looks better than it has in a long time. So I'm not done yet. I'll keep updating our listeners. Dan? Not really a question, Chris, more of a comment, but it's very <laughs> on brand for Ron to pick a tire company that was founded in 1890. <laughs> Thank you. What do you, that, what do you want I to do add the your, digging for the listeners. What do you want to add to your watch list, Dan? Well, despite Ron's absolutely glowing summary of how Titan International has done him so far, I think I'm going to go with Cloudflare. Or Flare, yeah. rather. Cloudflare. Yeah. Yeah. All right, guys, thanks for being here. We're out of time. That's going to do it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll see you next week.